This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. It's our Mind Matters segment today. Now, imagine you're struggling with serious problems in your life that you can't cope with. It could be relationship problems. Um, you may have lost your job. You may be going through uh, some financial issues. Or perhaps you're going through an actual mental health problem, such as anxiety, you may not be able to get to a psychologist or psychiatrist quite so easily, perhaps because there aren't any where you live or it could be too expensive to see one. Let me give you an example. In Zimbabwe, there are only 18 psychiatrists in the country or so where people are too impoverished to even afford bus fares to visit a healthcare facility. Now, what's happened in Zimbabwe is there's an initiative called Friendship Bench, which brings mental health support to the community by training grandmothers in talk therapy. So I am so pleased to have joining me today on the Mind Matters show, Dr. Ruth Farhey, International Lead and Training Curriculum Creator from the Friendship Bench program itself, and she's joined by Alicia Othman, Managing Director of Thrive Well, who comes on the Mind Matters segment quite regularly. And we are going to discuss how the Friendship Bench Initiative works, the role of lay people who can be trained to provide mental health support in the community and how this could uh you know, just on the whole, improve support and care when it comes to mental health. Now, uh, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Dr. Ruth and Alicia. How are the both of you? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Good to be here. Very excited to be with Dr. Ruth today. So you're both clinical psychologists. I, I kind of want to start there first. Um, but at the same time, even though, you know, we have both of you together um, here on BFM, we do speak to many clinical psychologists. But I understand that trained mental health professionals like you are actually scarce in many places. Um, Dr. Ruth, perhaps you could let us in on what is the scale of the problem when it comes to this human resource issue? So thank you for that question. The source of that is really that the idea of clinical psychology working with one patient at a time, for instance, is um, a bit outdated and old-fashioned. While I do it personally, and I think it, I totally think it helps many, many people. As you have said in your intro as well, it is costly. It is not really um, efficient to treat many. And so it's a bit of a, a niche for those who can afford. And I would always love to make the appeal that like medical aids should definitely cover this more, but we need ways that can reach more people in shorter amount of time. And I think most important for this one, and I'm sure Alicia would agree with me, we don't want to work with people who are already having the issues. We want to work much more on the on the prevention of people having to develop um, hectic issues before they can access help. Alicia, how is that important? And I know this is kind of the area where Thrive Well is largely working in as well. Um, you know, reaching people and giving them the support before you need to even talk about therapy and medication and things like that. I wholeheartedly agree with um, Dr. Ruth in terms of, you know, um, the, the the role of the psychologist with this you know, one client, um, I mean, there is value, definitely there's value in terms of 
um, effectiveness of treatment. But I think we, to make it accessible, we definitely need to move away, you know, to, to at least move into the direction of how do we um, educate and empower, right, different different people in the communities. And, um, and I think this is where um, the, the issue about accessibility is that Essentially, I think um, I would summarize, how do you bring the, the benefits of therapy, which is, you know, the skills, the information, the connection, to, to bring it out of the therapy room and into, you know, this, um, the, the communities, which is, in our case, you know, bringing it to the PPR playgrounds, bringing it to the, the um, low-income, uh, you know, micro-entrepreneurs. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's definitely... A, a huge and arduous task, um, but I feel that you know, especially with what Friendship Bench has, has achieved, right? It's definitely a um, exemplary and something that we on in this part of the world need to 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 adapt um, because it also you know goes goes down goes um, boils down to the the effectiveness versus cost. How do we balance between the two? Yeah, so I think that's definitely very very relevant and and. Um, Malaysia as a whole need to start looking at um, at how do we how do we um, you know adapt into our mental health system. Mm. But Ruth, how do we um, make that connection from the perspective of a member of the public, uh, a typical person um, who is perhaps struggling with all kinds of stresses and pressures in life, but not thinking of it as a mental health issue. Uh, now, when you're talking about being able to reach these individuals um, before they have full-fledged problems, um, is there a gap in terms of the public's understanding as well of what they're going through? I'm so glad you're bringing that up. So first of all, there's a big barrier for people to access help or to even realize that they could get help and that is stigma and there's not only public stigma but but there's also self-stigma so for me it's important that we change gears completely and we actually make what we nowadays call mental health just a normal topic right we can all walk around and show our broken arm and tell the story there's like no shame involved with this right but there seems to be terrible shame involved involved with someone feeling low because like you said they've lost their job and they literally feel like there's no way out and they've become hopeless and all of this should become part of just general talk and we should all be able and this goes back to where do we meet people actually I think we can all do much more for each other and so um, like what we do in Friendship Bench we're working with community health workers who essentially non-specialized health workers and basically for a while we also call them lay workers so they are not having any major training or they didn't have before they got the Friendship Bench training and even the Friendship Bench training can be can be given to anyone who's interested. So you don't need to have prior knowledge or expertise in any form. And it, it basically means we should all be learning how to recognize feelings in others, how to not judge people, how to, how to be open and asking questions that are open, how to listen carefully. And all of this, of course, takes time, but it helps building connection, like you two said earlier on, and connections are what makes human beings feel safe. And feeling safe will make us feel less anxious. And because we live in a world that is so much 
driven by competition and fear of loss and and like just just anxieties all over anxiety triggers are all over we really need to become more resilient and stress itself is not bad right like stress makes us grow it's just how we feel we know how to deal with stress that is the big trick here so I'm glad you've brought up, you know, um, how Friendship Bench um, trains its community health workers. Uh, perhaps we could take a few steps back and look at how this initiative came about. What was the context in Zimbabwe at the time that precipitated the need for this um, and for the founder, um, Dr. Dixon, to, to, to start this? So um, Dixon Chibanda started the initiative because he was working as a psychiatrist in the public service and he also learned very fast um, even if you have a psychiatrist or you have a psychologist we cannot meet all the needs of everyone right so the idea was how can we branch out and have like a low low access level um, entry point for this and because Zimbabwe has this amazing primary health care system where community health workers are carrying a lot of the load of the work, and there are the links, the direct links to communities. They were a perfect match, basically, for an approach of um, having them offering a service to the public. And when I speak about a service, I know we, we've talked about talk therapy, but basically it's not only talk therapy, it's also advocacy for mental health in general, which like I alluded to earlier, has this big stigma around like anywhere in the world. And so we know that stigma can only be um, addressed with knowledge. And if knowledge comes from respected community members, such as uh, the community health workers in Zimbabwe, people will listen and people will understand. Mm. Alicia, how yeah. would you draw parallels between Zimbabwe and Malaysia in terms of, uh, number one, the burden, and number two, the approach? Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities in terms of um, you know, the lack of um, the, the practitioners. Um, Although we have a you know higher rate of um, psychiatrists, psychologists, approximately around three to four hundred uh, for each profession, but I, I think access is still the main issue where they are mostly concentrated in major cities, and like in our work with um, with the particularly in in the Klang Valley with the B forty communities, a lot of them don't venture out beyond, you know, their taman or their area, right? So even going to a general hospital is very daunting because, you know, general hospitals are huge, you know, like just to navigate that whole system, understanding how to access that may be a big obstacle. So this is where, um, um, you know, we've reached out. Um, again, we, I think the a slight difference is that um, not really, you know, we don't have, uh, at least from, from, from the communities that we work with, not necessarily co- community mental health workers. So I think the challenge for us is they may not be uh, have any experience in terms of doing of public health advocacy. Um, but we find, like Dr. Ruth mentioned, people who are respected. And usually these are women, mothers and grandmothers in the community who are, you know, um, small business entrepreneurs or they are, you know, they, they've, they've been doing a lot of advocacy for other areas such as child protection or, um, or working with youth. So I think that's where the parallels are, right? Finding the resources in the community, and usually it's women, you know, mothers and grandmothers, who are, you know, who are aware about where are the assets in the communities, where 
are the the, the you know the, the the issues that that you know uh, that they share. I mean, women naturally, you know, they share their their problems or issues with each other. So I think um um that's where I I see the parallels of where do we how do we how do we use um you know or at least learn from the friendship bench model to kind of adapt it to kind of the KL or Malaysian context. Yeah. So clearly this. Again, women and grandmothers, I think, play a central role yeah, in, in, yeah, in this, this model. Mm. So we'll find out more when we come back from the break um, because it's not just any community health workers that you're training and working with in Friendship Bench. It's grandmothers, right? And I hope that um, Ruth can share some stories as well uh, of how... Uh, the conversations have started on the benches, for instance. I'm speaking today to Dr. Ruth Fairhay, International Lead and Training Curriculum Creator from the Friendship Bench Program, and Alicia Othman, Managing Director of Thrive Well for our Mind Matters show today. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. It's our Mind Matters show today and we're discussing something really interesting, an internationally renowned program, community-based program uh, that started in Zimbabwe called Friendship Bench and how they work in the community and train lay workers to deliver mental health support going beyond the clinical setting and really bringing mental health care, advocacy uh, and um, just connections uh, to people who need it most where they are instead of expecting them uh, to go to hospitals or uh, clinical uh, places where perhaps it's just out of reach for them. So I'm speaking to Dr. Ruth Farhe, International Lead and Training Curriculum Creator from the Friendship Bench Program and Alicia Osman, Managing Director from Thrive Well here in Malaysia. And um, we're trying to get ideas, you know, how this could work here in Malaysia. Dr. Ruth, um, it's it's not just any community health workers you're training and working with. It's grandmothers. And as Alicia said, women in the community have that very special position and role, don't they? So why grandmothers and what exactly are they trained in? Because earlier you said it's really at the end of the day about how to listen to others without judgment, how to recognize feelings, how to build connections. So how does that training look like for grandmothers? So the community health workers that are also called grandmothers, so it's quite funny for Friendship Bench, they are actually elderly women. And that was kind of by default because they got hired many, many years ago and they kind of grew old on the job and are extremely experienced when it comes to dealing with people and knowing the system. And because they live in their communities, they're also extremely knowledgeable about the the structure in the community and who does what and where where is basically need for anything. So, and they're known, they're well known when they do street work, which they do as well, especially in COVID times, they had to sort of work in the community much rather than in the primary healthcare clinic that they are attached to. And in the training we give them, we focus a lot on basic mental health literacy, as we call it. So we want people to understand what are symptoms of depression, what are symptoms of anxiety, what does it feel like if someone has suicidal thoughts and how can we speak to someone who has suicidal thoughts, you know? And so um, we give them all the skills to be able to determine that end, which is extremely 
extremely important in my eyes when you work with someone who's not formally qualified in that field that they know where and when to refer. And um, because it is like a system that, of course, whatever they can deal with, they should be dealing with because they can reach many, many more people. But if they have a feeling that this is needing a higher level of care, they need to know how to refer and where to refer to. And then we teach them um, the the main, basically, um, principle that we use in French Bench, which is quite an older, shall I say, old principle from cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's called problem-solving therapy. And the problem-solving approach is just basically a step-by-step approach to help someone to be less overwhelmed by all the problems of the world by basically understanding, wait a minute, I've got so many big problems, I'm going to take one out and talk about this one problem that the client chooses to work on and define it really well and understand I will only work on a problem that is actually in my power to solve, right? So often people come and say, well, I want to work on this person, my partner, my child. And already there, we have to say, wait a minute, we're not here to change someone else, right? You can only work with your own understanding of what's going on and what you can change within yourself, which could be your perception or your approach in a conflict, for instance. And so understand all of that is is extremely empowering to people because it literally does go back to wait a minute what can I do what lies in my capacity as a human being and then next following steps would be making a plan of how to solve something um, and uh, like understanding the goal and then we've got something that we call a smart action plan that should be followed and then ideally a follow-up and people coming back and telling the counselor hey this worked or this didn't work, in which case we can just go back and say, hmm, what didn't work? Can we find more steps to to figure out what was the barrier in this? Hmm. Any yeah. stories to share in terms of you know, individuals who spoke to some of these? Um, I understand now why we say grandmothers. They're not I mean, they are they are they are senior they are. Uh, in the community, yeah. but but also they yeah. are actually primary healthcare workers. Yes. Yeah. So any anecdotes yeah, that you could share? Yeah, so we have a lot of them. So so basically, think of the community health workers being ha- like employed as health promoters. So their job is anyways to work with health promotion. So this could be in our setting around HIV because that's very um, prevalent in Southern Africa still, um, malaria, tuberculosis, whatever you name it, cholera outbreaks, hygiene in general, COVID. Um, so in their work, um, depending on who they talk to, of course, we had we had stories of young women coming and saying they are so hopeless that they literally want to not live anymore because they, they basically feel they are so poor and maybe they got left by their partners, have small children to look after, have no steady income. Um, and so talking to the community health worker and being heard and listened to and, and creating this connection and feeling someone is finally not judging them for their predicaments um, has brought a lot of women around to say, no, I'm not feeling like I want to take my life anymore, right? Like I have more hope. I have a bit of an idea of how to create some small, tiny business, um, whatever that is selling fruit on the side of the street and just I feel more hopeful in reaching out for help to the right people 
So I think that that's always very touching. And we have some anecdotes of, of women actually making that happen and then creating um, like a ripple effect of that, like starting a little business and starting a little bit of a bigger business and then selling some kind of food stuffs on the street. And um, maybe I should add that here we also have um, like a group component that belongs to the Friendship Bench where we invite people to as a psychosocial support group, which with, with the idea, of course, um, learning to get to know other people that are in similar situations, because like I said earlier on, it's all about normalization. We can all end up having symptoms of depression and anxiety. And if we are ashamed of that and blame ourselves for it, we will just suffer and we shouldn't. We should help each other with this. Mm. Alicia, I would imagine these are the same kinds of issues that you hear in the PPR flats among the low-income communities, um, just people facing very fundamental kinds of problems um, that they're, they're, they're struggling to, to manage, right? So on the flip side, right, if there wasn't a program like that or if there just isn't any support where they can talk out these issues and get some clarity, um, what are they looking at or how do they grapple with it on their own well um i think based on our work you know they naturally the women will share some of these problems you know with their neighbors or a close confidant within the community but i think what friendship bench or at least in a, you know if we would definitely we're hopeful that we're going to adapt you know uh, um, the model to the, the malaysian context is um again arising from our experience because right now we're still heavily reliant on the mental health practitioners as we go into the programs we work with the mothers and grandmothers but when it comes to those consults it's always a mental practitioner that's still doing the 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 leading of it and what we notice i think i mean based on their feedback they're saying that actually this is a very you know they see us um, because they kind of use the medical model right the biomedical model so very often they would under report so when they share it's a fear of like you know, they already have double stigma. Stigma of mental health is one, but stigma of being a B40, a low-income person, they often say, oh, you know, the doctor doesn't understand me or I'm ashamed to share that I'm from the flats, you know, like sharing that my husband, you know, left home or, you know, those, those social, the, the social stigma perhaps for whatever adversities they're going through. So they always mention that, you know, um, it's, it's nicer if I talk to somebody who may be in the community, someone that, this is not too shocking for them when, when I share these stories. But at the same time, if I just share with this friend, I'm not sure whether this friend can be trusted. Do they have that? Is it good? Are they going to gossip after that? So, so it's kind of giving that what they need. I want to talk to a peer. I want to talk to someone with the same live experience, but I want that leveling up. Then can you help me with, you know, at least give me some skills or resources. So I think this is the gap that we currently have in, um, you know, in in, uh, in in Malaysia and how do we, I think the role of the mental practitioners, you know, is mainly to, you know, develop the framework and guide these women. So these women can do the leading and empower them to be the supporters to these communities, right? So I think that's essentially makes, it, it, it also makes, you know, again, the, when we go back to the cost versus efficiency, it definitely will address, um, 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 address those issues and the women themselves feel much, much more comfortable. So they always say, train the peers because I want to talk to somebody who lives here. You know, you're, they always say, they always say with, with that saying, oh, you know, you're really good. I feel good. But you don't live our lives. You know, you go away. At, at the end of this program or when, when whenever the funding ends, 
you're not going to be here anymore. So we're like, okay. I mean, and that's the reality. So I think this is this in terms of ensuring that we do that, you know, the the, the empowering of the 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 women leaders in the community. Yeah. Ruth, do you have thoughts to share on that? Yeah, I love hearing that. And that's exactly the model that would work so, so, so well, right? Like empower your peers who are interested in this, you know, because that definitely requires interest. And I've been working in various countries around the world, like with volunteers or with people who have been where it's part of their job. And it's always important to find someone who really wants to be in the training and wants to do the job and has that bit of idealism about making the world a better place and lived experiences are the best in whatever form, right? Because then you really know what you're talking about and whether that's with a relative or with yourself. And you mentioned the mental health practitioners and what an amazing gift that you have that level of care um, because in our model, they can be the ones who do the, the training, the supervision, the, the guiding. They can be the people who are being referred to because you af- absolutely want that. And I feel it's extremely empowering for the peers, for instance, if it, especially on that level, because we all know that it makes us happy to make someone else happy, basically, right? If I can say that one, helping others helps us. Because we get a purpose, we get a sense of we've done something that that makes a difference. And and from that point of view, I think it's perfect to work with peers. And I think you've got the system. Mm. And Ruth, um, you know, how exactly, I'm trying to picture, is it an actual bench? And is it in a public mm-hmm. space, right? If we're talking about normalising these kinds of approaches and conversations, are we really talking about... It's literally there where the community is and everybody sees what's going on. So we started out with actual wooden benches in primary healthcare clinics. And primary healthcare clinics here um, are kind of like in a compound. Like there's a bit of garden if there's rain. You know, we have a rainy season and a dry season, so there might not be much of a garden. But anyways, it's kind of a house situation. So there's space for the benches. And in the beginning, um, everybody paid attention to have the bench sort of behind the house. It's not as visible. But now it has changed quite a bit. I mean, we're like many years into the friendship bench and we have sort of recognition from the Ministry of Health and the nurses from the primary health care clinics often say to us, they're so happy that they've got someone to refer someone to. You know, in case of someone being very distraught and emotional, whatever they can say, now you go out to the bench and talk to the to the grandmother there. So that's that's a like win win for primary healthcare. And when we're in the communities, it is and we don't have benches in the community yet. That's we we didn't have funding for that, or we kind of like hmm, had thought about it. But on the other hand, the bench can also be a symbol, right? Like it's it's more of a it's just a space taking away that idea you have to have a room you have to have a certain equipment we can all talk to each other anywhere we can walk together and talk and I think um, what I most come across in my clinical world and just in I guess life experiences like how often do we talk to someone and we feel the person's not listening really or while we talk they're already framing their answer but we really need someone who's just there and listens and that's a skill and it requires patience and it requires almost taking ourselves a little bit back for a moment um and just try to be like in tune with the other person so yeah we don't need a bench we can have a bench but we don't necessarily need a bench (laughs) and uh what was the reception from local communities 
Yeah, so that was interesting. And it's going on all the time. I think the more we do um, the health awareness, um, also speaking about symptoms of depression and anxiety, the more people make sense about it all, right? Because they make, can make links. And Zimbabwe is a country that has a lot of well, socioeconomic problems, a high unemployment rate and sort of chronic poverty for many people. Um, so people do relate to that whole idea of worrying a lot and not quite knowing what tomorrow brings and trying to find ways to feel better. Um, and we still have a lot of work to do in terms of making it more known. So um, we did a lot of research before we are at this place where we are at now. And um, what we learned is from our research that women are the ones who go for health seeking, basically, like they look for care, whereas men don't so much. Young people often feel mm, these primary health care clinics are not really made for us. So we need to work a lot on making it youth friendly, for instance. And so so we, we are learning that it's not as easy to say we have an intervention here. People now come right. People like between learning about health and actually doing something is a big step that we all can work on. And we need always need people who step out and say, I went there and helped me. And then it, it's slow, but it's kind of an organic ripple effect. Mm. But um, you have measured outcomes, right? You've um, published a study. Mm. Perhaps you could uh, walk us through uh, the results. And what does it mean to actually be able to measure the results of this program? Mm. So we continuously try to do that because it is super important, I think, for any implementation of any program to say, do we actually do we actually have numbers that back up what we're doing? So that's called evidence informed. And so we did a clinical trial a couple of years back and we had um, so what we did there was um, basically we had a group that got the intervention that was sitting on the friendship bench and then we had a group of people that got what we call usual care which was like going speaking with a nurse getting a little bit of information and that's it maybe medication depending but but often not because of the unavailability and what then happens is that we were of course interested in following up after a while because it's all very nice if someone is feeling better that day or that week later or something so we had offered um six sessions well up to six sessions of friendship bench um and we went back after six months and we had significant difference between the group of people who received the friendship bench care compared to the ones with the usual care. And that um, significant um, difference there is sort of then interpreted as in friendship bench did help. So the, the limitations of that study, though, and I think it's always important what I said earlier on, those were mostly women because we did it at the primary health care level because that's we wanted to work with that population. And that is most mostly women who go there. So there's definitely that need for more reaching out to other groups um, in, in marginalized groups and also reaching men and training men as community health workers who can deliver the friendship bench program. And we're still experimenting with all of those things. I think what's most um, outstanding of that study, at least for me, is with, that we had an 80% decrease in the suicidal ideation, how we call it. And I think that's really important because anybody who's ever dealt with suicidal thoughts know how how toxic and hurtful they can be and how ashamed we are when we have them and, and we, we fear sharing them, although we need to share them to get the, the connection and love from other people so much. 
Alicia, I want to talk a little bit about um, local nuances when we talk about mental health with um, local communities. Um, and there's that stigma, even in uh, the, the kinds of words that we use. Uh, perhaps you can share from the work that Thrive Well has done, you know, how does language come in or um, perhaps not even just words per se, but the the local understanding. How would you frame um, mental health instead of? I think sakit jiwa is is a word that sometimes used, right, Alicia? So in our local Malay yes. language, Ruth, that's it's a sickness, sickness of the soul, even you know. And, and sort of how does that gel with the kind of advocacy that you're doing? Yeah. That's a very good question in terms of, you know, I, I think our experience, particularly about what, 10 years ago when we started out, or 8 to 10 years ago when we started out going to the community, of course, most of us were, you know, trained in the hospital and going out thinking like, okay, let's, you know, do some screening or assessments, you know, to to because detection is always the first step before we do, you know, any education or advocacy. But what we realized, I still remember from our first community mental screening, when we got back the results, everything was normal of a group of 30 men and women. So we're like, okay, statistically it should not be, you know, we know that it should not be all normal. So then we, you know, break out into smaller groups, have, you know, like more of a conversation. And it was a very different conversation compared to the results that they, you know, they, they actually answered in the questionnaire. So I think you're right about the language because a lot of these questionnaires, you know, we tend to write um, our spoken and written language are very different in terms of very formal, you know, what we call like the newscaster language, especially in BM, right? Compared to the colloquial language where we use, you know, lingos or slang. So, so what I've realized across, um, you know, the different ethnicities, because there's also different language, dialects, so many, you know, um, um, different ways of expressing, there's a common theme across that in general, that the, the informal language, people like to use a lot of somatizing description of of how they feel rather than the emotion word although it exists for example that that word that there's one word to describe the emotion but there seems to be it's not a common commonplace practice that we use those emotion words but we use things like you said sakit jiwa sakit hati uh, pening kepala a lot of them when i say distress they always say pening which is dizzy like a headache but that actually means they're in distress. And then you have to probe further. What do you mean when you have this headache, you know? Um, so it's always, so I always, um, you know, uh, um, share with, with particularly the mental practitioner team when we're engaging with the community, um, because most of us are trained in CBT where we always start talking about, oh, well, your thoughts. I said, no, 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 that's start with how do you feel in your body or just general health? Because they're so used to going to the doctor. And I think this is, you know, everybody, at least in Malaysia, has some experience with the medical doctor. So they naturally will use those kind of somatizing language. But you use that and then how do we get into the details of, okay, how, how does that make you feel? Or how's your interaction? How's your behavior? And, and I think this requires, <laughs> that's why it requires a lot of adaptation as opposed to a lot of mental, mental practitioners here. We learn a very Eurocentric model. <laughs> you know, it's from the West and we try to adapt. So that's why we need to really localize, right? The, the, the contextual part of, of, of the language is very, very important. Um, I can also share one uh, example when we were working with the indigenous children community, they don't actually have a word for depression because when they have depression, they have a ritual 
if if they if they experience a particular symptom like depression all of the communities actually do this particular like a song dance ritual kind of thing so we're like ah so that gives us an indication right when do you do this ritual so you know the question becomes a, you know it's it's different in terms of of the way we engage so i think that's very an important part that we i think um and in the mental health care system right we really need to contextualize and how do we ensure that we are reaching out to kind of the right segments yeah, right, of community yeah but that of course requires a lot of <laughs> a lot of effort yeah <laughs> but like you said it's the value there is in working with peers in the community who for them yes. this is the language that they use naturally anyway yes. and the reason i brought that up is i understand that in zimbabwe ruth um you know they also don't uh, identify anxiety and depression per se right you have your local language or, or, or a different uh, way of thinking about these kinds of distresses yeah it's exactly the same what elisha said so the different languages don't identify this this I mean, such a Western term, depression. It's a syndrome of so many different symptoms, right? And and I I think we all need to understand as well. It's not like you have depression, you don't have depression. This whole binary system just has to be abolished. It doesn't work, right? So so here in in the context of Zimbabwe, in the, the language of the biggest ethnic group, it's kufungisisa, which translates to thinking too much, and exactly that then makes me have a headache and I present to the like healthcare practitioner in whatever form with a headache. And if that person doesn't have the time or the knowledge or the energy or whatever to ask a little bit further, I'll probably get a like a painkiller and I'm sent home. Right. And and I I might even then get worse because I think, oh my God, the painkiller didn't help me. Like I still feel terrible and I still have this headache. And um yeah, we need to be I mean, that's why I said it's so important that people get awareness about what they need and how they feel. And I, I often think, wouldn't it be great if this was part of curriculum in primary school and kindergarten and like the children just know immediately this is emotional language and this yeah, is how it's used and this is how people should be. Responding to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and teaching children how to feel their feelings uh, instead of suppressing them. Because I think that we do that a lot with kids. Um, don't cry. Um, don't be angry. Everything will be okay. Or we just try and fix their problems for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Ruth, how do you see this program being expanded um, to communities in other countries, and is there uh, that that is happening, isn't it? So, for example, Alicia, I'm sure is is um, you know uh, just waiting for the opportunity to start something like that in Malaysia. How would um, a partnership like that work? Oh, I'm so excited about that because that's exactly my role at the moment. So I've already worked with a group in Vietnam. I've worked with a group in the US and in Canada and in Jordan. And we're like in several African countries as well. So the we always try to work with a partner who is um, in the place where actually work is done with people from the community. <laughs> so thrive well as, as he would be a really good partner. And um, obviously it requires us all to find funding for it. But once that is all settled and we have our agreements in place, 
I always start out working with a partner with um, like having a workshop with stakeholders and understanding like, like, like where and how and by whom and for whom so that everybody has the buy-in and we're not just coming in like top down plunking in a program into a community that says, what is this? We didn't want this. Nobody asked us, right? So you really want to go in there with that participatory approach and get the, the buy-in from every, everyone. And then I have a, like I've developed a series of workshops with partners to understand where we do we have to tweak like especially like the language part always fascinates me and the sort of the cultural understanding of of terminology and concepts are so super valuable in this and and just to to cross any kind of barriers that people might have in terms of like oh you don't understand what we have here like we, we want to sort of break that immediately from from day one and then sort of adapt everything that needs to be that needs to be adapted on that level. And then I personally train um, a group of people who, especially in your case, I would be like your mental health practitioners are like the perfect fit. Who, they could come to a training and then they are empowered to train the peers that you select. And I, could, I would help you like find out how what criteria you select your your uh, peers that you want to work with um, and then take it from there. And I've conceptualized it as well that I'd be there for a whole year of partnership to help the implementation because like it's, it's almost easy to conduct a training, but it's really difficult to plant a program so that it's actually accepted and used by the community and everybody continues to grow with it. And like we, we work with through problems and learn every time something goes wrong. Mm. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alicia, what challenges do you think uh, might occur? Um, buy-in, for instance, do you think uh, that's something that uh, may be an obstacle to work on? Yeah, I think there's three key stakeholders, I think, here that I see in terms of the challenges. One, uh, I think Dr. Ruth mentioned, funding. I think that's fundamental, right? You need, you know, that partner to be able to financially support you know the development delivery and and measurement of you know of, of this program even for a pilot program so that requires um which i think you know i'm very confident that friendship bench with you know the replication of the model across different countries would definitely help to support um that case but i think what we we definitely need to look at is because funders always want the socioeconomic impact mental health impact the you know uh, symptom uh, reduction uh, indicators are important but they always ask about the social functioning indicators right are they going to jobs are they going to schools and that does require a lot of funding to measure in terms of even medium term even if not long term medium term secondly it's also among the mental practitioners i might be unpopular by saying this some of them may challenge this like you know what about the level of quality um, in terms of you know when you when you train the peers um, and 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 how do we provide a support system to manage you know the different risk levels so so this is where I think we do need you know at least a strong support from the Ministry of Health because they are the again the governing body even if they don't pilot it but we do need that stronger link to be able to change the mindsets of the mental practitioners and thirdly I think it's the beneficiaries um, at least from the women that we work with, um, again, anecdotally, they seem supportive. They want to do this. But the realities of these you know, women in these communities, they are usually facing many adversities and they have competing interests. So again, how do we ensure they are recognized? So I think the Zimbabwe model is great because they are healthcare workers in recognized by the Ministry of Health. 
So how do we ensure that they get the recognition um, financially and also in a way the the role right the role is recognized by 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 authority. So so this will ensure the sustainability um, and they are able to at least um, earn a certain income um, for for the work that they do. So I guess these are the three you know challenges that we will need to 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 overcome <laughs> to be able. Yeah, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> Absolutely, you should be because um, friendship bench. Um, has measurable impact that uh, we can point to, right? Um, for in terms of how this model works. But Ruth, could you uh, lay out the argument or or the rationale if mental health professionals do have reservations about a program like this in terms of quality um, provided by lay workers? Um, what is your response to that? Okay, that's a great question. So I think my first entry point would be obviously there's a treatment gap. And I mean, mind you, there's a treatment gap all over the world, right? There are not enough mental health professionals to address the needs of people. Or if there are lots of mental health professionals, they're too expensive simply, right? So so that system just can't carry on. And I would think we need the mental health professionals, like people like Elisha and I, because we are there to oversee. So this whole principle is called task shifting. And it's like, like we said earlier on, when I speak about Friendship Bench, I I like to stress as well, we are aiming to work with like low to moderate symptoms of depression and anxiety. We are not intending to capacitate someone who's a peer to work with like a, a hectic, severe presentation of a mental disorder. That's that's way too much. I mean, that is already that's already hard for us mental health professionals, right? And it takes time. Um, so it's more of a we can make the work better for everybody if we streamline better who gets what care. So it's like, I don't know if you know, but like the UK has this program that's called the IAPT where they sort of help, sort, I mean, that's probably the wrong word, but help sort patients into the psychiatric care system by seeing who really needs it and by making sure that the ones who need lower care also get that, right? Because mm-hmm. the bottleneck is, in, I don't know, I mean, often there's months of waiting before you can see a psychologist. I don't know what it's like in, in, in Malaysia, um, but I know that from Europe. And that's unacceptable. Like you can't sit at home with your broken arm for six months before you get that addressed, right? So, And we know that mental health disorders usually get worse. They can even chronify if they're not treated. This whole idea of it will go away by itself is, is not really true as such, right? And, and once you had depression once, the likelihood of you getting depression again is just growing um, and we just have to yeah, get in there. <laughs> yeah, so perhaps we need them. <laughs> I could um, try to wrap up by broadening the lens if we um, look beyond what programs like Friendship Bench can do where, um, yes, community-based initiatives are important uh, in this sort of the step-up approach, but if we broaden out Ruth's what do you think do we need to address in the rest of the mental health ecosystem as well to have that holistic support and really be able to say we care about mental health as much as we care about physical health? Okay. First of all, and this might sound a little bit funny, first of all, I'm somehow getting a little bit allergic when we keep talking about mental health because we then we stay in that separation of health, right? Like there's this amazing um, motto that was... Um, 
spoken about called there's no health without mental health. So basically, it's just part of health. We should just have a bigger view. I love how you said that, a bigger view on health in general. And because you cannot separate body and mind, I don't even know where that came from in the first time. Yes, we can look at that historically, but it does not make sense. We all know that when we are afraid, we often get stomach aches, right? And that's not because we're crazy. That's because the brain and the gut are literally connected and work together as they should as well. So so once we understand much more, and if you want to come from the biomedical model and you understand the biology around it and, and all of that, then we have more of a normalization, I think. But I think because it is, it feels foreign or you can't see it as such, or we can all work around, walk around with a smile on our face and pretend we're fine. And that's, of course, easier for the onlooker, right? If I'm, if I'm fine, it's easier for you as compared to if I start crying when you ask me how I am, right? So if we all get more skills and in being with someone who shows emotions um, and we all allow ourselves to, to have emotions, I think we would fare much better in general. I agree 100%, you know, we, we keep separating the two, but how do we incorporate it as part of overall physical health? But I think um, also what I would like to highlight, uh, particularly where we're working with marginalized communities, is how do we understand also the kind of the social barriers, right? And I think this is where I mentioned in our earlier, uh, our, when our first foray in the community, where they were normalizing the adversities. So the symptom was not highlighted because they were like, yeah, this is my life, right? It has been like this for the past 20 years. So, so how do we, I think the, the, the key thing is to get them to understand health and it's an important part, but what about the, the factors that improve that for them to understand health? So how do we remove those barriers? As we mentioned, the language aspect, the cultural competency, and ultimately I, what we hope at least, you know, um, with this collaboration with, with um, Friendship Bench is also to empower those with live experiences to make the changes in their lives, you know, because they are the ones who are living this 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 life, right? Not the mental practitioner, not the you know uh, the people in the clinic, but how do they retain the skills in the community and then educate and empower other people in the community? Then we you know we 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 have a a, a bigger you know outcome and impact um, in in the future rather than that uh, back to the first part of the interview the one. MH therapist and one client, we want to have a bigger impact and and um, and also to reach out, um, you know, to 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 the eighty percent, ninety percent of the population that will not be able to make their way to the hospital to get that timely and effective treatment. I think yeah, prevention is always better than cure. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to end on that note because um, it is forward looking, it's visionary, um, and. Ruth, thank you so much for sharing everything that Friendship Bench has been doing. I've been speaking to Dr. Ruth Ferre, International Lead and Training Curriculum Creator from the Friendship Bench program that began in Zimbabwe and to Alicia Othman, Managing Director from Thrive Well here in Malaysia. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.